Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. in uh, the fifth commandment. Let's read that together and let's read the commandment and then let's read the, the extra part that goes with it. Okay. Thou shalt not kill or murder as God's beloved love the sacredness of life in self and your neighbor. So we're focusing as we kind of work through this material is that we're not simply looking at the commandment from the, per, from the perspective of what's prohibited. That's fairly obvious from the thou shalt not words, but we're also talking about what is it that is the, the greater sort of positive message, if you want to think about it from that perspective. And so we've been talking a lot about the idea that God views us as his beloved, and that then because we are his beloved, what that does is that informs the way that we view ourselves and the people around us that that really impacts how we view each other and then how we treat each other as well. And so the emphasis in this commandment is on the idea that it isn't just simply that life is precious. It is, I mean, it is, but it isn't simply that. It's the idea that life is sacred. And where we would get that idea is that if you go down to the part there where it says from the last session, is that we are all created in what? in the image of God. So we go to Genesis 1:27, where it says, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So there's this idea of a, a greater connection, if you will, that human beings have to God than even necessarily that you would get from the rest of creation. Okay. Even though the rest of creation was created by God, that the language that's used to describe the animals and the beasts of the field and things like that is not, it does not include this idea of being created in the image of God. What do you think that means to be created in the image of God? Because God is a spirit, I mean, so we're not, when we talk about image, we're not really talking about a, uh, a physical image, something that you would see, but what, do you, what, what, uh, what meaning do you make of that? And the reason why I ask is because commentators are really all over the map on this in terms of what exactly that means beyond the idea that we have this connection with God. Perhaps the image say what you think perhaps the image pertains more to our soul <laughs> more to our inner being more than the physical nature of it yeah i would su- suggest that that there's a that the soul would certainly or the spirit would certainly be that sort of receptor if you will to use that language that we have that receptive uh, connection to god could be seen as our the free will where we've been given and the ability to pray that we were also given alongside this. Okay. Where, so far as I can tell, there's no real mention of any other creature having the ability to both sperm God and accept him in equal measure. Right. I, for lack of a better term, the angels have been seen to follow his will. We've never seen anything more than that outside of Lucifer. He was in, I think he was, I think he was like a little sidekick. Well, it's, you know, that, and the Bible doesn't talk an awful lot about 
how the devil came into being. You know, we, we would assume that he was a created angel, but it doesn't, you almost have to read John Milton in order to get some sense of, of uh, how that all, that all came to be. But that's another one of the, one of the thoughts about uh, it, it created in the image of God is the ability to, uh, uh, to accept God or to receive God in some sense and, and then have that free will to reject him as well. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times when we, when we think of the image of God, we kind of equate that with his characteristics. Right. We think about his loving nature. God is love, yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what we think of when we think of image. Sure, sure. It's, but, so it's not to say, again, that, that all of creation isn't a creation of God. It, that, you know, we think of all the, all the creatures in, uh, in, in creation, but that mankind is, a, is, a, is above that, right? Above it doesn't mean that it's our job to subjugate uh, creation, but, but nonetheless, the, the relationship that we have with God through faith is something that's reserved for people, and it's not, uh, not reserved for animals. Now, having said that, how many of you believe that there will be animals in heaven? Dogs, for sure, we know. <laughs> yes, and there'll be a few cats so that the dogs have something to do, right? Isn't that how that's going to work? But again, from our, pers- from our Christian perspective, and certainly coming out of the, the Bible teaching about this, we don't believe or teach that animals have souls, okay? So that would be a, a created thing in the sense of a difference between uh, people and animals, okay? So it's a kind, of a kind of a neat thing, though, when you think of that from that, uh, from that sacred uh, perspective. Number two, or, or point B, the world seeks to value life by its usefulness or viability, not its inherent sacredness. And so that plays into uh, why it is, at least from our Christ- Lutheran Christian perspective, that we look at the issue of abortion differently than necessarily a strict medical model or necessarily even a strict worldly perspective, is that we look at all of life as sacred, irrespective of the circumstances under which that life was, uh, was, uh, uh, was begun, okay? And, and so all of life is precious, all of life is sacred, all of life is a part of uh, God's, uh, God's creation. And then thirdly, we talked a little bit about anger, and I want to pick up on that a little bit today because sometimes we as Christians struggle with the idea, is it okay to be angry? And if I'm angry... You know, what do I do with that? Is it a sin? Some people have grown up with the idea that anger is a sin. Anger is a sin. And so we want to be able to talk about that as well today because it can be an instrument of harm. No question about that. But it also can be an instrument of good. And we want to be able to talk about it from that perspective. Okay. Anything? Have we sort of caught up? Have we sort of caught up? Okay, good. So let's get into asking the question. Under what circumstances might anger be an appropriate Christian response? So one that comes to mind is, for example, if you're advocating for someone who has little or no power or cannot speak for himself or herself, that is when anger actually can be a force for good, okay? So a couple verses here that... uh, Come out of the scripture for us. Would someone read uh, James 1, 26 to 27 out loud, please, Richard? 
<laughs> Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So in that verse, in those verses, who are those who, who likely have little or no power or who could maybe perhaps not speak for themselves? Who would it be? It'd be the orphans and the widows, okay? And in, in Bible times, that was a very prominent difficulty for someone to experience in life because there weren't, they didn't have the social safety net, right? A lot of people were, uh, it, it, at least in the, uh, in the agricultural societies, uh, grew up in tribes and families and that sort of thing. So there might have been family that would be available and, and the uh, Old Testament made provision for that if, uh, if you had a widow who had no children. Well, then she would be taken into the family of one of her relatives with the hope that perhaps uh, children could, could come from that union. But that was, uh, that was a provision that God put in place so that uh, widows and orphans would not, be, uh, would not be destitute, all right? But again, we see that, that, that example of God's care for people. And then would someone read uh, Deuteronomy 10, please, 17? Yes, yeah, Sandy. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So what would an example in our day today be foreigners? Pe people from Minnesota, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. I mean, this really kind of hammers us a little bit, doesn't it? Given all of the, uh, the angst that is in our country and particularly in our state since we're a border state, okay, but other states as well, in terms of how you would treat the individual foreigner. I don't think it's necessarily making some uh, comment here about what a nation's uh, immigration policy ought to be. All right. I don't think that's the sense here. But nonetheless, there still is a, a mandate, I do believe, in terms of how we treat people that didn't grow up around here. All right. If you want to if you want to use the, the language that we often do. And so there's this idea of loving people whose presence in your midst might be a threat to you. And maybe they're not a threat in the physical sense, but maybe there's some sense of that their presence puts some sort of, uh, some sort of pressure on your life in some way, okay? You know, he's pretty clear there about how God treats that. And then he says, now, as I've treated uh, you that way, then I expect you to extend that same hospitality to, uh, to the people with you. Any, well, any thoughts? You've got to love the people who love the Astros. What? You've got to love the people who love the Astros. No, this is not applied to that. <laughs> yeah, you have to. I mean, you know, again, you can, you can secretly not love them. 
but, fi- but outwardly, right? Yes, he's talking about Astro fans. I'm sorry. Did you not hear that over here? He's talking about Astro fans. Yeah. So we do draw the line somewhere, I assure you. All right. So foundational truth 29 is be cautious in using your anger to motivate your advocacy because unaddressed anger from your own past experiences can be triggered and likely cloud the issues. Does that make sense? A good example of that that I've seen quite a bit of is when a child experiences bullying in school and then the parent hears about it, which of course the parent ought to hear about it, but the parent himself or herself was bullied in school and never quite got past it. And then what happens is now you have the double angry person parent coming to the school and not just simply uh, thinking in terms of the, uh, the experience that his or her child has had, but now is remembering the experience that he or she had. And what happens is, is that the teacher or the school or whoever it is that needs to be um, addressed gets the double, gets the double. And so again, it's not to say that... Anger can't be a useful tool because what does anger enable you to do? What, is it, what does it do for you that is positive? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it actually, you know, internally in your body, it generates the, in some sense, courage. There's certainly a strength, you know, there's this sort of urge to do something. And sometimes people that would keep silent and should speak up. They don't speak up, but when they get upset or get angry, then, then that would be a good thing. The caution is, is to keep your own anger about your own experience separate if you can, or at least be aware that it's there so that you're able to be um, responsive to the situation without going over the top. And sometimes going over the top results in parents bullying schools. So the very thing that they're unhappy with, with respect to how their own child is being treated, they turn around and feel justified in doing the same thing. And that's the danger of using anger as the sole motivator. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it doesn't just happen in schools. I've seen it in churches and, and business settings and all kinds of things. So it can, get, it can work anywhere. All right. So just to be aware of that. Okay. Another... Another situation in which anger is entirely appropriate and one that can be a a, a force for good as well as a force for harm is when you're working through the grief of a profound loss. Maybe any of you or some of you have um, read the old classic uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book, Death and Dying, that came out, I think, in the 70s. And what that book did was it kind of increased our awareness, I guess you could say, of, of some of the normal things or the, the normal uh, stages, if you will, she used the word stages, of working through grief in terms of loss. I think today most people don't think of it anymore as stages, all right? It's more of like you go through these phases, if you will, of different emotions that are associated with the loss. And anger is one of those, okay? Um, What are some of the other emotional reactions that people have to loss? Anger is one of them, but can you think of some other ones? Denial Denial is another one. I can't believe this is happening. It must not be happening. Okay, that's one of them. Okay, what else? Hmm? Depression. Depression is certainly a part of that. 
Um, I like to call it a dip. You go through a dip, but what can happen with the dip is you can get stuck in the dip. And then if you get stuck in the dip, then it certainly becomes a form of depression. Okay. Sadness, of course, we would say sadness. Um, There's also kind of a numbness often that happens as well. It's kind of like a uh, Uh, being under an anesthetic of some kind. And uh, that's kind of the body's way of of, uh, 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 initially reacting to to the loss, particularly a profound loss. So anger is a normal emotion that's associated with the reality of a loss. And I think that's that's the part of it that's the hardest thing in many, uh, many losses is that there's now a new reality. There's a new reality. And how do I get to that place where the old normal isn't there anymore, and now there's a new normal. That transition uh, is what takes me through all those emotions. Oftentimes, when people are angry about a loss, it's accompanied by the question, what? Why? Everybody asks why. We all, all, every single one of us asks why. Can you think of an example in somebody in the Bible asking why? Oh, yeah, the whole book of Job. Yeah. And he had all these friends that were more than happy to come and say, well, we'll tell you why you messed up your life and now God's punishing you. And that's kind of the the normal human response, isn't it? When something bad happens like that, we go to that place that says, well, okay, I'm going to do the math, right? The math says that if something really bad happened, well, then I must have done something really bad. And that makes perfect sense, right? But that's not necessarily the answer that uh, that God will uh, give. I'm thinking of Jesus. Did Jesus ever ask why? When? On the cross, right? My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Um, Sometimes with, uh, depending on the nature of the loss, and often this is associated with losses, in particular a death that happens in the wrong order. Now, what would an example of the death in the wrong order be? A child. When a child dies, that's the wrong order. That's the wrong order. The order that we all sort of expect, not that we like, it's just we sort of expect the normal order is what? That the older you are, then, yeah, you'll die first, and then children will come along. But when a child dies, we can't get our brains wrapped around the, uh, the, uh, the, the sequence of those things. And so very often, uh, people of faith struggle with this idea of being angry at God. And I have always taken that as a normal thing. I mean, there is some sense of, of uh, if G- God is a loving God, which we believe and say that he is, the Bible says that he is, God knows all things and can do all things, then why didn't that loving God stop this from happening? Right? Is there an answer for that? In heaven. You know, in heaven, they got those two lines of where you stand. The one line is all the questions that you wanted to know when you were on earth right? That'll be a very long line. But the good news is you have eternity to stand there, right? I mean, (laughs) isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah. Um, And then the other part that often uh, goes with this in terms of anger is that we're angry at the person who died. And sometimes, and most often I've seen that in, in, uh, particularly with suicide, is that when somebody takes their own life, then the survivors are angry at the person who died for either in some sense taking the easy way out, that's kind of the anger that's there, 
Or there's just this feeling that now I'm stuck cleaning up the mess, right? Or I'm stuck with all the things that have to be done, and uh, here you're gone, and now I have to deal with that, okay? So again, it's, it's anger in the sense that there's a new reality now. And the new reality and the new normal isn't what it was before the death or before the loss. Now it is. And how do you adjust to that? How do you get to where that new, that new place is for you to be? Okay, make sense? All right. Thirdly, sometimes we get angry at ourselves. How many of you get angry at yourselves occasionally? Oh, good, good. Yeah, for whatever. Okay, for whatever. And sometimes we're angry at the dumb, stupid stuff we do. Sometimes we're angry at the things that other people do, and it affects us in some way, and we can't handle it very well. So uh, some thoughts here on some healthy ways to deal with your anger, and, and I would say uh, anger w- with uh, special respect to the idea of grief, okay? So one way to do this is to write a letter that you will never send. Now, what might be the benefit of that? You're not going to send it, you're, but you're still going to write it. So what's the benefit of it? You could really vent. You're going to get a lot of judgment because so nobody's going to read it. Right. So you can just really let go. So you're, you're sort of expunging it from your inside of your head. There's a lot of benefit to the idea of writing out how you feel. Do any of you journal? Some people journal, okay? Some people do. And they find and talk about this quite a bit <clears throat> that uh, the, the, when you keep something in your head, in your thoughts, it's hard to control it. Have you noticed that? Because when you don't want to think about it, you're going to. When you want to sort of focus on something, but you got this going on in your head and your brain is saying, oh, we better not forget, better not forget. And so then it stays with you. But when you write it out, there's something healing about that in the sense that you're getting it out. And then plus, it's easier to manage it when it's on paper than when it's up here. Okay, so whenever uh, whenever I'm in the process of of having somebody work through this, especially with grief anger, is I'll have them write whatever they want using whatever words they want. (laughs) Words that they, oh, their mother would blush if they saw those words, right? Because again, it's just this idea of getting that um, sort of negative energy out somewhere. And, And some people find that they have to write two or three letters, Okay, and in particular, if it's someone who died and you're angry with the fact that they died, okay, you can actually write a letter to that person. You actually can do that. And one of the things I've noticed is, is that over the process of writing the letter is it softens. So by the time they've written the third or fourth letter, if they if they need to, um, the tone has shifted. And it's really moved from the angry place to the sad place. And that's really what, that's really where we want to get to is the sad place because that's actually a, uh, a primary emotion where anger is a secondary emotion. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Another idea, another thought is find a godly, healthy friend or counselor to whom you can express your anger in his or her presence. The key for that is that if you're going to do that, the person that you're talking to has to follow the no-fix rule. What's the no-fix rule? Do what? 
Yeah, that, that person has to kind of listen and can sort of kind of process with you what you're saying. But if that person feels uncomfortable with your anger, then what they're going to try to do is talk you out of it. And usually in, in, uh, in the faith community, what's the way that we talk people out of how they feel? We come up with Bible passages to support it. That's what we do, all right? And it's not because it's a bad intent. It's really a good intent. We're try- we want them to feel better. You know, we want them not to hurt, okay? But sometimes what happens in that desire that we don't want people to hurt, we sort of short-circuit the process that you have to go through in order to get to that better place, okay? Instead of just jumping right to it. So, yeah, May. One of the things that I find is that it's what I call reflective listening mm-hmm. instead of trying to fix it for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly you, you don't, the listener does not want or need to take that same position. Yeah. But, but use the iMessages and, and do the reflective thinking. Sure. So what you're saying is, is that you really feel that doing reflective listening is really a good way to respond to somebody without necessarily um, trying to give them advice or something like that. Absolutely. There you go. They have to own, they own their feelings. Yeah. And, and their feelings are what needs to change and you can't change it for them. They have to change it through that. Through that process. Yeah, that's right. So it really is. So uh, the kind of thing that sometimes we say inadvertently, again, not meaning to hurt, but I think we just say it without, you know, kind of mindlessly, is when someone says, for example, I'm angry at God. That's not a very comfortable moment for most people, right? Especially even if you're on the listening end. And sometimes we blurt out something like, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Okay, that's really not the most appropriate thing to say at that moment. Okay, but it but it does recognize we do recognize that uh, that sometimes we're uncomfortable with that. Okay, okay. Um, do the grief work? Are any of you familiar with Grief Share? As some of you maybe have have gone through Grief Share programs. We used to have one here a long time ago at uh, at our church, and there's a lot of churches now that do Grief Share. It's a it's like a 13 or 14 week I think process. You get a workbook, you meet with a group and a facilitator, and you actually go through the process of understanding grief, talking about your loss, those kinds of things. We experience that on a on a very small scale here at Messiah every year when we do our Surviving the Holidays stuff, that little workshop that we do. We did that a few weeks ago. And uh, we found that that's also a very powerful way to have people talk about their loss. And that's a, that's a, that's a major thing. Okay. Uh, do daily cardio to work off the stress. I'm sure all of you are doing that already, right? Daily cardio. Do you know, any of you even know what I'm talking about when I say daily? (laughs) Yeah, in the seminary, it was like this. That's what it was like. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, set reasonable limits on yourself. What would, that, what would an example of a reasonable limit on yourself be if you're working through uh, grief stuff? What's an example, Sue? Yeah, don't take on more than you can really do. I think the problem is we all think we can do way more than we actually can do, right? Yeah. So it would be things like, and we talk about this in Surviving the Holidays as an example, because holidays generally, kind of that uh, Thanksgiving to New Year's time, although probably now it's like Halloween to to, uh, New Year's, is the season of overdoing it, right? I mean, that's just natural anyway. Uh, And so setting limits on yourself, notice I'm not saying set limits on other people. 
right? Why is it not such a good practice to set limits on other people? Because it doesn't work. That's why. Yeah, that's right. But you can set limits on yourself. And so it's simply sort of being, um, being mindful of your energy level. Okay. Being, being thinking in terms of all the things that we did this year, maybe we could cut some of those things in half and then put them on the shelf and maybe do them next year. But this year it's enough for me to try to work through my, uh, work through my grief. Okay. Uh, acknowledge your anger, the tension, the hurt yearning. That's uh, that's some stuff in terms of figuring out what it is that you're, uh, that you're sad about. And then we talked about this earlier in a couple of weeks ago, uh, maintain that healthy praise, encouragement, criticism ratio. Remember that one? I know all of you are practicing that now, so that's, uh, we don't even have to mention that. But what is that? The five to one ratio, what does that mean? What does that mean? Five praises and encouragements for everyone, what? Criticism. Yeah. See? Life is so much better with that. Yeah. I think it's important to note, we think with grief, we're thinking mostly of death of a loved one. But, but loss can be loss of health. I dealt with a lot of parents who had a disabled child, and it was like their ideal child was dead, yes. and they went through tremendous loss. Yes. Dealing. So there's loss of money, you know, your finances going, losing your job. Yeah. All of those are anger. They all are. Anger. Yeah. Yeah. I and and the grief here is real and profound, depending on. The, how that person views that loss. So see, that's, that's part of what's kind of hard sometimes is that, is that a, a, a certain loss for one person might just be devastating, but for the other person, it might be devastating. And yet the pace of recovery is different. And that sometimes is what's really hard is that you, you, you think, well, I'm at this point, how come you're not? And there's a little bit of worry sometimes that kicks in that maybe someone's getting stuck in one place versus somebody else who maybe isn't so stuck. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking of when you talked about setting some reasonable limits on yourself, especially when you're going through grief and loss of someone, you can't be comparative or put time frames on oh, yourself. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, yeah. this person got to this point or did this faster, or, you know, I'm at this, it's been this long since. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, because I think we have a tendency, she, 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 she's saying that, that if we end up comparing ourselves to other people in terms of where we are compared to where they are in, in that loss, then we can end up maybe in some sense being very impatient with ourselves or with that other person. And, and you'll hear, you'll hear, uh, we say this, we'll say, uh, I should have gotten over it by now. You know, I, that's oftentimes something that I hear a lot. Um, uh, when I'm working with people is that, um, they'll say, I just can't believe that every, every year at this time, that's the other one that you hear. There's a kind of a seasonal, um, uh, sort of association that our bodies make with that loss. And they'll say, I just can't believe here it is again. I'm doing this, doing the same thing. And it, it, there is a kind of a looping that happens with that. And so just sort of accept that as normal, natural, because sort of the bottom line is if you try to fight it, you will lose, <laughs> right? The body kind of wins that stuff. And uh, 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 so that it's important to just, just float through it if you can, if you're able to do that. Yeah, Beth. I've, I've found with my own self that if I give myself 
I forgive myself. You forgive it's yourself? It's okay for me not to be able to do everything that Susie does or Mary right. does. Right. It's okay mm -hmm. because I'm not Susie. Not yeah, that's and right. This is where I am in my life. And mm -hmm. as I've gotten older, that's been the hardest yeah. thing I've gone through is to say it's okay. It's all right. Yeah. I think sometimes God has an easier time forgiving us than we do. Not that it was easy for God to forgive us. I don't mean it that way. <clears throat> but sometimes we hold things against ourselves way longer than God does. And then we kind of should on ourselves, don't we? Well, I should be. I should be. I should be. Right. Okay. You, maybe you should be, but you're not. And, and that's, you're not able to do that. Okay. All right. So here's the last part then. God can handle your being angry at him. Is this heresy? No, God can handle that. Good heavens. He knows our pain. And so we mentioned Jesus on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then this great passage from Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Since therefore we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet what? He didn't sin. Jesus gets it. See, that's the beauty of Jesus as a human being, not just some divine being. He's a human being. And so he gets it. He knows exactly what it is uh, like for us. He empathizes with, uh, with our weaknesses. So foundational truth number 30 is words or actions committed in the heat of the moment should be repaired if hurt was caused. Forgiveness of the hurt clears the way for productive teamwork. Um, have you ever tried to do problem solving with somebody that you hurt? You hurt their feelings in some way and you found that the presence of the hurt will get in the way of the problem solving you're trying to do. You ever found that to be true? If you have, then you have to go back to the forgiveness part. That's the part that got forgotten or that's the part that got skipped. So when you think about forgiveness, forgiving somebody, um, how comfortable are you with using the words, I forgive you or asking the question, will you forgive me? Is that part of your language? Is that something you do? What I find is that uh, even among people of faith is that when someone asks for forgiveness, we often say things like, oh, it's okay. Or we'll say, well, you know, I guess I was just making a big deal about it, but you know, it's okay now. For whatever reason, we're very uncomfortable with the idea of saying the words what? I forgive you. Okay. The beauty of the word forgive, I forgive is that what it does is it brings closure to that situation, okay? But I think the other part that sometimes is scary for people when they say the words, I forgive, is that if I'm going to say it, then it obligates me in some way. And the way it obligates me is to treat you as one whom I have forgiven. Ooh. And so, see, sometimes we say the word, I forgive you, but our feelings are still hurt by what that person did. And we're not all that sure that we want to treat them differently, right? As someone whom we have forgiven. Yeah, Carl. I find that it's almost exponentially different between saying I forgive versus will you forgive me? 
Say, can you say more about that, what you mean? Yeah, it's, it, it's very difficult to say, will you forgive me for this? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's admitting that you've messed up. <laughs> and it, it's tough. It's you hard. Face to face with someone. That's right. And ask for forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. The good news is, is that you can get good at that. Isn't that great news? You can actually get good at that, right? So how would you get good at that? By doing it often. You know, it's kind of a little bit of, you You know, you are what you practice. It's kind of like that. Okay. Well, okay. If it's hard to do, that just means you got to do more of it. Now, not in some sort of flippant way, like, oh, okay, fine. It's my fault. Okay, whatever. That is not genuine. And some of us are in that crummy habit of doing it that way. But what it really is, is that genuine sense of, I recognize that when I did what I did, it hurt you. Now, here's an interesting question, because I hear this all the time. People say, well, why should I apologize? I didn't do anything wrong. But hurt is still there. Is it possible to do the right thing and still hurt somebody? Yeah, because sometimes the way you did the right thing was crummy. So if hurt gets caused, you got to repair the hurt. And the best way I know to do it is to say, I realize that when I did what I did, that hurt you. And I feel bad for hurting you. And don't have to say, but I did the right thing. You don't have to say that. Because <laughs> that just kills it. We all know you did the right thing. Thank you. All right. But the way I did it hurt you. Will you forgive me for hurting you? And if you say that and the other person says, I forgive you, it's just amazing to me how that just, it, what it does is it brings closure to the hurt part. And now we can move on maybe in addressing the thing that happened and problem solving it and doing teamwork and that sort of stuff. But if you skip all that, then that hurt is still there. And what hurt does is it erodes confidence that people have in each other. And it clouds the issue. So it's just a great little way to just be mindful of the fact that sometimes we hurt each other. You know, sometimes I, I hurt people. At, like an example would be um, I drop a phone call. You know, somebody calls the church or they call my office or whatever. And, you know, I'm putting out fires left and right. And I drop that. I drop that. Well, so then they're hurt and feel like, oh, you know, he didn't care about me. So when I am repairing that, I'm not saying, well, I had like 20 other calls and you were number 21 and I just didn't get to you. You know, I don't do that. I just say, you know, I, I realized when I dropped that, that I hurt you and will you forgive me for hurting you? That gets it out of the way, doesn't it? Yeah. And that way, then we can move into whatever it is that we need to deal with. Okay. All right. Let's look at quickly sacredness of life that's celebrated under the fifth commandment and I don't know, we're, we're at a quarter till. Do any of you have to leave to go to the late service? Okay, why don't we end here? Okay, can we do that? And then, oh, oh, so let's quickly talk about next week is, uh, is the day before Christmas Eve. We're going to meet, but could we like have some cookies or something in here? Could we, <laughs> can we do that? Have a little, some refreshments? Um, would somebody have time to sort of, or do we just do this by word of mouth that whatever you want to bring, we have coffee, we have water, maybe some, I don't know, orange juice, or I was going to say mimosas, but I don't think that's going <laughs> to. 
I would be tempted. Yes. And so we'll do the lesson. We'll probably get into the sixth commandment a little bit too or something. Okay. But if we could uh, do something like that, that'd be kind of a nice fun way to, to do the day before Christmas Eve. Okay. Sound good? I'll just leave it up to you to whatever we may get, you know, whatever we get. Okay. All right. Well, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word and the way that it speaks to us in such a foundational, truthful way. We thank you for the gift of the sacredness of life. Sometimes we're, we're uh, pretty casual about that in our world today, Lord. We, we come up with all kinds of reasons to not see each other in a sacred way or to see the lives around us in a sacred way. So this is a good reminder for us, Lord, as you have called us your beloved, that we then have the opportunity to be the beloved with each other and to treat each other uh, in that way. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, whose birth we'll be celebrating next week. And so, Lord, as, as many of us are doing a lot of last minute stuff. We pray that uh, you would keep us mindful of, of, of the season, uh, keep us safe, certainly, and, uh, and bring us back safely here together until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.